So the way Owen, the analogy Owen uses, which I, I really love, is he says, union is like the sun. It's just always full. It's burning hot. It's, I mean, it doesn't, it's just full all the time. But communion is like the moon. <laughs> and sometimes it's a sliver and sometimes it's full, right? But the, the union is secure. But the communion, our experience of, of, of that reality can ebb and flow. And I think that actually can help us keep sane. Because in our Christian life, we all know what it's like. We've had dark nights of the soul. We've had a long season. We feel like God is distant and that kind of thing. Struggles with sin. And I think this helps give some integrity to our experience and to the reality of what God is doing and, and His faithfulness through the whole thing. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. It is uncontroversial to say that this doctrine is at the center of the Christian faith. It's even at the center of our identity as Christians. However, even though that's the case, uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like it is the case. Uh, Oftentimes, the way that Christians approach the doctrine of the Trinity is in a very abstract way, uh, a way that uh, is not very inviting, or a way that is completely disconnected from what it means to be a Christian or how to live the Christian life. Well, in order to counter that tendency, a very popular and pervasive tendency today in which Christians more or less don't understand why the the Trinity is relevant uh, for their Christian identity. In order to counter that, going back in time to look at some of the old books of Christian theology can be extremely helpful. Of course, if you uh, know me, then you'll know that uh, it doesn't take me long to uh, go to a figure like John Owen, the great Puritan, uh, because Owen is someone who not only wrote on the Trinity, but connected these dots between the, the Trinity and the Christian life. Uh, his book, Communion with the Trinity, is one that not only I, I continue to recommend to people, but it's one that I return to personally to refresh and uh, re-examine whether my understanding of the Trinity is not only orthodox, but whether it actually influences and impacts my Christian life. Well, in order to discuss uh, this important topic and one that is neglected so often by churches today, I have invited Kelly Capick to come on the Credo podcast and to discuss the Trinity and how it relates to the Christian life and what it means exactly for us to have, as Owen said, communion with God. You may know Kelly from his many books. Uh, I'll just mention a few that uh, I have enjoyed, and I hope our readers, our our listeners will as well. Uh, Embodied Hope, uh, Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. He also wrote a little book called A Little Book for New Theologians, Why and How to Study Theology. 
He's written a book on the Trinity called The God Who Gives, How the Trinity Shapes the Christian Story. Uh, He also has a book called Communion with God, the Divine and the Human in the Theology of John Owen. I should also mention his most recent book, uh, which is released uh, not that long ago, called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And this book uh, is co-authored. Kelly, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Uh, It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me. Kelly, I'm going to throw at you a quotation to start us off. It's a quotation from Carl Rahner, and uh, it's one I think you're familiar with, but uh, it's, a, it's a startling statement. He says, uh, he says this, it's, and here he's referring to the Trinity. He says, the Trinity's function in the whole dogmatic construction is not clearly perceived. It is as though this mystery has been revealed for its own sake, and that even after it has been made known to us, it remains as a reality locked up within itself. We make statements about it, but as a reality, it has nothing to do with us at all. Uh, Kelly, Rahner here is describing in, in many ways what he has seen uh, and the, the common perception. Uh, interestingly, he's writing this uh, ways back, but I, I think that this still rings true today. I think that for many Christians, the average churchgoer, even pastors, even seminary students, uh, this is the type of, maybe they wouldn't say it out loud, but this is the type of assumption that they have. Uh, can you address Rahner's statement? Why, why is this the case? Uh, and and does, it, does it indicate that we are actually approaching the Trinity all wrong? Yeah, I mean, that is a comes from a, a work by Carl Runner, a Catholic theologian, wrestling with um, what he, as you as you well know, what he thinks is kind of looking at the 19th into the 20th century, kind of the irrelevance uh, um, of the Trinity. And going back to Immanuel Kant, who said basically the Trinity, there's nothing of practical importance in the Trinity. And this is kind of a, a an idea we could pretty easily shelve. That's kind of Ronner's concern is if we stop believing the Trinity, would it make any difference in the church, right? And I think you're right to ask, you know, even seminary students and pastors and certainly laity feel that at times, but don't don't really want to admit it. It's an uncomfortable thing. Um, I, I think there's a, a fair amount of truth in what Ronner says. I, I, let me, I guess I would put it this way, though. Um, I work with undergraduate students uh, at university where I teach, and when I talk about the Trinity, I, it, it's interesting. There's this I'm almost you know multiple personality disorder or something because on the one hand, I it's like I'm I'm saying, guys, the Trinity matters way more than we know, right? And we have neglected the Trinity, um, and I and I believe that in many ways. But problem is then sometimes people hear it and think, yeah, maybe we don't even believe in the Trinity. And so on the one hand, I want to say we need to be more Trinitarian than we've been. And on the other hand, I want to say, actually, the people of God are more Trinitarian than they realize. Mm. <laughs> and that's the, the tension I feel with the Ronner quote, because there is a very real sense in which 
the actual church and the evangelical church and that you know the people of God through the ages never lost sight of the Trinity. They may not be able to articulate it well, mm. but it doesn't mean they're not Trinitarian. So um, I, I I would love to see a renewed emphasis on the Trinity, which as you you know you've been part of it, helping us have a renewed emphasis on the Trinity, and at the same time to encourage people in that and. Mm. Maybe I'll say one other thing and let you come back is what I mean by we're more Trinitarian than we believe. People don't become Trinitarian because they've heard a reasonable argument. Most Christians are Trinitarian because the Spirit made them alive as he illuminated the beauty of Christ and they've trusted in him and rested in the love of the Father. (laughs) In other words, they're Trinitarian because they've experienced God as triune and now they need words to articulate that reality. Mm. Does that make sense? No, it does. Uh, Sometimes, you know, let's just put it this way. I have yet to meet a Christian who said, um, you know, it was an argument or or, uh, some type of proposition, and uh, that that changed everything. Now, that that doesn't mean, like you said, that doesn't mean that those aren't incredibly important and essential to them. They are. However, uh, their eyes are first open to the to the beauty of the triune God, simply by their eyes being open to the gospel, uh, and and as yeah. they come into contact with the gospel, well, of course they're trinitarian. Uh, but like you said, uh, right. they then face because the challenge. they're coming into contact with God, who's triune. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> and they're right. Seeing him as that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so I think you're right, Kelly. That that uh, as they come into you know contact with God himself in the gospel of his son as that happens and suddenly they they need words <laughs> they need words they start going yep. to the scriptures how, how do I articulate how do I um how do I talk about and words do matter for sure yeah yes absolutely now uh, you've you've raised an interesting point here uh connecting uh who God is to um how how we receive him uh, as the beneficiaries uh, of grace, uh, you know, as, as we connect those dots. Uh, on the one hand, we're trying to um, understand who God is as triune. Uh, we don't, though, want to, you know. And, and there's been lots of debate in the past with Rahner. You know, do we collapse the economic Trinity and the imminent Trinity? So so maybe you could just tease us out a little bit. How, how is it that, on the one hand, you're right, we, we come into contact uh, with the triune God uh, through, through our eyes being open to the gospel itself, and at the same time, we want to also be careful we don't just collapse the imminent triune God into what he does in history economically. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I I think I see what you're asking. Um, I, I mean, there is this, there is the reality, and then there is the articulation of that reality, right? And so, um, you find this most clearly in the Gospels themselves. This is the argument B.B. Warfield makes that that it is the very, you know, Warfield argues that the proof of the Trinity is actually the coming of the Son and the pouring out of the Spirit. It's incarnation and Pentecost. And he has this very provocative way of saying, the proof of the Trinity is revealed after the Old Testament and before the New Testament. Mm. Right? 
That's a very sophisticated thought. What he's saying is, it is then in that reality, in act, in in deed, in in him, in his son and spirit, that God has revealed the triune. But then the words must still come mm. to articulate that reality in a way that can be passed on and experienced. And and as you know, part of what our concern is is that we worship the God who is, rather rather than idols, rather than misconceptions. And so even as we experience God as triune, we want to make sure our worship is directed toward him. So we're dependent on the scriptures to, to figure that out. And the scriptures have, they, they teach a couple things that are true. One, that there's only one God. And yet those same scriptures seem to be clear that Jesus is identified it's in this divine reality of the one God. He is treated as Lord and Savior. Um, the Father is um, God, and the Spirit is treated within that divine identity. So now you have one God and the Father, Son, and Spirit given this divine status. How does that work? And that is what the Church is wrestling with. And then, as you were talking about the, you know, these terms, you have a pretty sophisticated audience. I'm assuming gets the imminent and you know ontological trinity, but. What do you do then if you say, well, Jesus is God, but Jesus sleeps, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jesus eats, Jesus says, I don't know. So how do you figure out what is telling you something about God and what is not? Because we also believe classic orthodoxy is that Jesus is God's fullest self-revelation. So how do we have him as his self-revelation without all of a sudden thinking that God himself is hungry and sleeping and those kind? Of, does that make sense? Is that is that where you're going? Is that the kind of question you're you're getting at there? Yeah, it is. Uh, and, and taking us to the incarnation is a a, a great case study, isn't it? Because uh, it's at this point where we are noticing the humanity of Christ. Yeah, in its mm-hmm. full form, you know, he, he's eating, he's hungry, he he weeps, you know, at the at, at the news about Lazarus and and so on, um, and yet we have these uh, just startling statements by Jesus Himself that uh, His existence precedes Abraham, for example, mm, uh, or, yeah. and and others, you know, in John's Gospel especially, which I know you you've written on. Uh, John's Gospel, where he is identifying himself with Yahweh, uh, and and of course this invites the the wrath of the religious leaders. They they may misunderstand him at points, but they seem to understand something uh, at least enough to understand. Well, he's claiming equality with God. So I mean, there's so much more we could say there, right? But but it, even right. when we come into contact with the incarnation, it 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 raises questions. It brings us back to some yeah. of those uh, pro- those essential questions in theology. Well, if this is who Jesus is saying that he is and was, and what, you know, what what does that mean for monotheism? What does that mean for the triune God even in eternity? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, but it seems like at that point, uh, you know, the fathers are right to to start thinking through well especially as they are reading John's gospel, you know, how do we understand these, you know, uh, 
the, the Son being from the Father or the, the Holy Spirit proceeding mm-hmm. and, and how those then affect and, and are, are um, manifested in time and space, especially with the incarnation of Christ. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, uh, the the early church, and we talk about the patristic period and the early church fathers, um, are exactly like you said. They are they're trying to nuance this, and you know, it's it, you kind of started us off, and I think I got us distracted. You talk about kind of the problem of is the church, and often this kind of audience is is the evangelical world really trinitarian. Um, and you'll, you'll get people, you'll say, do you believe in the Trinity? They say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to. I don't really know what it means. Mm-hmm. And then you'll, and they'll say things like, well, I mean, God's one, God's three. That's contradictory, but whatever, we believe crazy stuff. Right, right. But it's, it's very interesting. That's not actually what the Church thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can even have pastors who don't realize that. When we say that God is one, and we say... There's uh, this threefoldness in God of Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't actually mean one equals three mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense of one plus w- you know, one equals three or something like that. We actually mean there is this one God, right? This is this is who He is. This is the divine nature, and that one God eternally has three ways of being God: uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. But th- this is where the church makes these distinctions between, you know, one one being in three persons. We don't mean the one and the three are exactly the same in the same way. There's there's really technical distinctions that are being made there, mm-hmm. and we don't have to totally get into it. But it's worth your audience knowing if they don't. We don't actually think this is just filled with contradictions. Right. These these things are carefully distinguished from one another. It's not meant to be absurdity. You know, one of the, the I've encountered this. You mentioned that you teach undergrad students. I, I've seen this in students uh, as well as churchgoers. Is because they may have uh, some of these misconceptions, like you just mentioned, they tend to think of the Trinity more or less as a mathematical problem, uh, and, and maybe one yeah. that is contradictory or even just irrational. But for all kinds of reasons, it's you know, it's it's a doctrine, so we need to just check it off and and kind of move on. Um, but like you're talking about, actually, that's not the way that uh, we're talking about the Trinity. Uh, it's, it's not irrational or that sort of thing. But but even more to the point, when we understand, you know, God being you know one being, as as you just mentioned, and three persons, that begins to have. If we follow that through, rather than just dismissing it from the start and, and thinking, oh, this is. This is just some mathematical problem. It's irrelevant. Well, if we actually follow that through, that helps us understand how God has acted in history and redemptively in relationship to you and to me and to the church. You know, one one book that uh, it, in the history of the church, I mean, there's so many, right? But one book that I keep returning to is John Owen's, uh, John Owen's book uh, of communion with God, the Father, Son, and and Holy Ghost. Uh, actually, the title's a lot longer than that, but uh, communion with the yeah, Trinity. It's, it's like a paragraph. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, sometimes those Puritan titles uh, more or less tell you what the book is before you have to read it. But uh, this is Owen's work here is so refreshing in many ways because he's not as much as in that book and other books as much as he's going to 
get into the orthodoxy of, of what we believe about, about God, uh, he never divorces that from how, how God has acted and, and, and what the triune God, what that has to do, what in the world that has to do with our fellowship with that God. Uh, maybe you could uh, you could just you've written on Owen and, and specifically communion with God. What does Owen mean by communion with God and and specifically in relationship to the Trinity? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, part of what's so significant about John Owen's work on communion with the Triune God is. He is emphasize. He's not the only person who talks about this, but he kind of draws it out to a whole full book length discussion in a way that is fairly distinct. Um, and he's talking about this idea of communion with God and the God who we commune with is triune. So, a couple things need to be said. First of all, what does he mean by communion? And this is interesting because he makes a distinction between union and communion. Uh, both in terms of the Christian life and how it relates. Union is something that God does. He uh, unites us to Christ by his Spirit. This is a one-time act. This is a you know classic Protestant Reformed idea. We're united to Christ. Uh, that is the fa- that's not the goal of the Christian life. That's the foundation of the Christian life, right? That's our starting point, not our ending point. But the reason I mention that is that is distinguished from communion. So union doesn't ebb and flow. You have a bad day. You sin really bad. You are not less united to Christ by the Spirit. You are secure in that union. But communion, Owen means something different. Communion, Owen defines as mutual relations. And that's very important. And I, and I think, to be honest, it's important for Reformed folks who are so strong, we rightly emphasize divine action and priority and that kind of thing. But we can lose the fact that human agency matters. And so when Owen talks about communion, he's talking about mutual relations, and he's saying God's not interested merely in being united with you, and but he wants communion. And for communion to take place, that requires not just God's action, but human agency in response. So so Owen is saying that Christian life is one of, out of this union with God in Christ by the Spirit, we then have experiences of communion. And that's a great way to make sense, then, of why things matter. Like, it does matter if you pray. It does matter if you go to church. It does matter if you um, seek to uh, be faithful, because that can help or hinder the experience of communion. It does not compromise your union, but it does your communion. Just a quick example, you know, I I pursue my wife, I and you know, get her to marry me as soon as she says I do, you know, and we get married. What happens if I don't talk to her for a year? <laughs> not not great marital advice, right? But would we still be united? The answer is yes. But are we experiencing communion? Mm. If I'm being negligent, if I'm not talking with her, if I'm not... And the answer is no. My neglect is already in the, the communion. Um, even if she is there wanting to experience it. So it, that's that's the important side. And then we can um, 
we can uh, unpack some more about the the trinitarian nature of that but does that that kind of make sense that overview yes i i one way and you've teased this out a little bit uh one way that i've heard it put uh is that you know god's the one who who unites us to himself through through christ um he he initiates and uh secures this this uh union with christ and to christ um uh, and that's something that we cannot lose because it is his doing uh because he is the one um, who sovereignly uh, gives us this this uh, this grace? This this is something we cannot lose. Uh, however, like like you're talking about, when it comes to well, what what comes out of that? This this uh, relationship of communion and and fellowship with God. Well, like you're saying, that is something that, especially in our sanctification, um, that is something that at one moment we uh, may feel very strongly. Uh, it, it may be. Uh, seem very precious to us. Um, uh, but it, it, the next moment, and maybe it's because of sin or a, a particular trial, we uh, that communion may feel as though, you know, they're, they're struggling or waning some. And uh, all that to say, uh, that, that distinction, that, boy, that is so important. Maybe you could answer a uh, follow-up question, uh, and it's this. Uh, if we understand this distinction right, rightly between union and communion, how does that keep us from, uh, or maybe we could put it this way, what's the danger of, of losing that distinction or perhaps reversing it, both in terms of, say, the relationship between justification and sanctification, or, or perhaps uh, just our, our general view of salvation? Does, does that put us in danger of a, uh, uh, either a, a semi-Pelagianism or a Pelagianism even? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right to see dangers there. I, I mean, I even think you have whole denominations, or or at least certain personalities. You have uh, people erring on these different sides. Um, some of it, some of it is, what do you think is the biggest danger? Right. So you have you have some people often who uh, have come out of certain fundamentalist uh, suffocating backgrounds who hear about radical free grace and grace is radical and it's free, um, and the beauty of the gospel. And as they hear it, they are told rightly that there's nothing you can do to make God love you. It is something you receive by grace, you know, through faith. This is a beautiful thing. Um, so th- that is a beautiful truth. But then what can happen is that becomes the only truth. Mm. And if you're told every Sunday, here's what God demands, here's how far you've fallen short, don't worry, Jesus did it all for you, and by the way, everything I just said is true, but then that's where the sermon ends every time, then any time anyone ever, including the Apostle Paul or anyone else, says, and here's some things that you should do, right. that feels like legalism. Mm. Um, because grace has been detached from human agency. Now, you have the flip side. You have others who are worried about moral laxity and this kind of stuff, and they're constantly telling people, here's what you should do. You should have a quiet time. You should do this. You should do that. These are the things you should do. Here's your, your program, that kind of thing. These are all the things you need to do. 
And so they're emphasizing human agency, but it becomes very clear who people who try and live in that side, Mm -hmm. they feel really great. They feel like God loves them when they're having their quiet time, when they're evangelizing, whatever, whatever that checklist is, they feel good. But when they're not doing it, they feel under God's judgment. Mm. And so those are the those are the two sides where one undermines human agency, and the other overvalues it and loses divine agency. And the beauty of the union communion distinction is it allow it allows for genuine security and robust agency. Mm. So the way Owen the analogy Owen uses, which I I really love, is he says union is like the sun; it's just always full, it's burning hot, it's, I mean, it doesn't, it's just full all the time. But communion is like the moon. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it's a sliver, and sometimes it's full. Right? But the the union is secure. But the communion, our experience uh, of, of that reality, can ebb and flow. And I think that actually can help us keep sane. Because in our Christian life, we all know what it's like. We've had dark nights of the soul. We've had long seasons. We feel like God is distant and that kind of thing. Struggles with sin. And I think this helps give some integrity to our experience and to the reality of what God is doing and, and his faithfulness through the whole thing. Boy, I love that. I love that illustration from Owen. The, uh, the sun like union and the moon like communion uh, that captures so much of it. And, and what you just said is mm. I, I hope our listeners are, are paying attention to this because those two extremes, or we could call them two ditches on each side of the road uh, yep. uh, in, in overemphasis on the one hand uh, and an underemphasis on the other hand with divine, a- with, with human agency, uh, either, either way you go, you end up compromising something essential now, now that you and, and can I just say one more yeah, thing, man? Go ahead. And it's interesting. I mean, Owen, as you know, draws heavily like on the Song of Songs here, and you know, this is, uh, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux. This is Calvin and others. But the reason I mention that is the the imagery he's using is of love. It's not actually of balance. Sometimes people try and approach these things and think. We need to balance it by talking about this much about what God does and this much about what we do. No, no, it's not balance. It's extremes. God lo- God's love is this radical extreme. So you are a child of the Father, secure in his love. And if you actually buy into the security of that love, you will be in a position to respond not out of guilt, not out of shame, but out of delight. Hmm. Um, but so it's not about okay, rest for a while. Now you do your part. Rest for a while. Now you no no no. It's you're secure in the shadow of his benediction, and out of that confidence of your security in Christ, you can respond. Hmm. You're never earning his favor, but you are living out of it and responding to it. Um, something like that. When we talk about communion uh, and, and all these distinctions we're making. Uh, of course, this is not unrelated to who God is as triune. Sometimes I think, and I, I, I admit this myself, even in my own uh, Christian life, I can uh, think of communion in relationship to God in a way that doesn't 
uh, doesn't think of him as triune. It just thinks of, of God mm. in the abstract, whatever that is. Uh, and and yeah. uh, when we do that, uh, I know that I, I have seen this in my own life. I, I start to notice that, well, it, it just starts to feel um, a little bit empty or irrelevant or, or just mm. purely abstract and actually not very Christian in the end. Uh, Owen, however, and we, you know, the, the title gives it away, but if you, if our listeners read Owen's book, uh, they'll discover that Owen not only talks about communion with God, but communion with the triune God. And then he takes us a step mm, further yeah. and he actually, uh, explains, well, what does that look like with each person, father, son, mm-hmm. and Holy spirit. And it's at this point that I think Owen it takes us into a, a strange new world uh, in, in which that I, yeah. don't, I don't know that most churches or churchgoers even even uh, entertain or even cons- have considered before. Uh, maybe I, I know this is a this is a huge subject, but maybe yeah. just briefly, could you touch on wh- what does that mean exactly to have communion with each person? Because because God's not just one, but He yeah. is triune. What does that look like? Yeah, no, this is good. And I mean, I think this is probably what you're getting at with the Carl Rahner quote. Um, so so part of what's interesting is Owen would say, yeah, uh, and Colin Gunton, who was one of my mentors, who, who had, there were plenty of uh, some things I would disagree with on some of his rendering of historical theology and other things, but he was still a brilliant theologian. And, and Gunton was good about this too. But Owen, Owen would really emphasize there's no God behind the gods. Mm. It's not Father, Son, and Spirit, and the behind Father, Son, and Spirit is the real God. Right. There's not a fourth deity. There's one God, and the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, you never have communion with God apart from the divine person. You always approach God by approaching a divine person. And there's this great, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, and Owen quotes this, Calvin quotes this, um, Gregory of Nazianzus' statement, where the early church father, Gregory, uh, used to say, you know, whenever I approach the one, I find I'm surrounded by the splendor of the three, and any time I encounter the three, or am in the presence of the three, I encounter the one, right? And it's more, it's more poetic, because it's like, how do you say this? ineffable, how do you say this thing that's beyond us, right? Well, Owen is saying, we commune with God, but the way we commune with this one God is uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the normal pattern is from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. But Owen, Owen thinks we have, can have distinct communion with the Father, with the Son and with the Spirit, and he uses Paul's benediction to frame that, where he talks about, you know, uh, that we are in the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So he really explores it. Obviously, he thinks Jesus loves us. He thinks that we experience fellowship with the Father. So he's not trying to put them at odds against one another, but there is something to this distinction. So he explores how we commune with the Father in love, and the Son in grace, and the Spirit in fellowship. Um, And yet he's consistently clear that as soon as we're experiencing communion with 
with the divine person, we are experiencing communion with, with the triune God. Not a chunk of God, not a part of God. It's God himself. The fancy term there is perichoresis, right? Mm-hmm. This mutual indwelling. To encounter the Son is to encounter the Father and the Spirit, right? This, this kind of dynamic reality. So that is what his book unpacks. I personally think, in terms of my own life, his brief section chapters on communion with the Father was really pivotal for me as he explores how often we misunderstand the Father. We tend to associate the Father with wrath, and Owen turns that on its head and really emphasizes how clear it is that this is the Father is linked with love. Um, we tend to think, Jesus loves me, the Father's angry, but Jesus somehow does something to make the Father put up with us. And this is very common in evangelical preaching, yeah. and it really hurts our people. It's one reason we don't pray, because we just feel like the Father's angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's all kinds of pastoral implications here that really matter. It's not just abstract theology. We've been talking with Kelly Capick about the Trinity and how the Trinity affects the Christian life. Uh, as you just heard, uh, it, it certainly does. Uh, this is, uh, w- when we come into contact with God, it, it's not just, uh, as Kelly just mentioned, it's not just uh, someone behind, a fourth deity perhaps, or a fourth person, or, or, or God in the abstract, but this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is one and undivided. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if, if you haven't read any of Kelly's books, I would encourage you to pick up one of his books, uh, Communion with God. His, his book on John Owen is tremendous. Uh, his book on the Trinity, The God Who Gives, is, is another excellent one. Uh, he's also, I should mention that he's also uh, edited some works uh, or, or written uh, in some way uh, a forward or an introduction to some of Owen's own works. And uh, I think you'll you'll be, um, you know, if you pick up his book, uh, Owen John Owen's book, Communion with the Triune God, uh, Kelly gives a, a very helpful introduction that will guide you into Owen's deep and rich theology of the Trinity, but also the Christian life. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Oh, it's been a delight. Thanks again, Matthew. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.